This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, August 19th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Doug Blair. Afghanistan continues to dominate the news cycle. As the days go by, we learn more and more about the mistakes and failures that led to the end of America's longest war. What is sometimes lost in the big picture discussions is the human element of the story. Today's guest, retired U.S. Army General Don Bulduck, served 10 tours in Afghanistan. He joins the podcast to discuss his experiences on the ground and what we can do for our troops coming home. And don't forget, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, be sure to leave us a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now on to today's top news. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said there will be many congressional inquiries into what happened in Afghanistan. Speaking on the Hugh Hewitt radio show on Wednesday, McConnell said three leading Democrats have already spoken out in disgust over the way the events unfolded in Afghanistan. I I think we'd have bipartisan support for a plan that might actually work. I I noted this morning, Hugh, that the, the three Democratic chairman of the Defense Armed Services and Intelligence Committees uh, announced they are upset about this as well. So the president has managed to um, to alienate even his allies with this step. And in terms of the political consequences of it, uh, his approval rating uh, below 50 percent for the first time. New Jersey Democrat and Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Menendez said he plans to hold a hearing to discover what went wrong. He said in a statement, Senate Foreign Relations Committee will continue fulfilling its oversight role with a hearing on U.S. policy towards Afghanistan, including the Trump administration's flawed negotiations with Taliban and the Biden administration's flawed execution of the U.S. withdrawal. McConnell says he thinks military leaders were caught off guard by the president's decision and added that he doesn't think the withdrawal could have been handled any worse. I was talking to the military leadership as well that, first of all, the decision to withdraw was something they thought was a mistake, and I believe they had said that to the previous president and the one before that. Second, um, they they surely were blindsided by by the rapid decision and the announcement of it And um, this was just a botched job all the way around. And rather than the president, Biden pointing the finger at everybody else, he needs to point the finger at himself. It was his decision. He owns it. And um, it's it's an embarrassment of gargantuan proportions for our country. There are estimated to be about 15,000 U.S. citizens trying to get out of Afghanistan. Afghanistan's deposed President Ashraf Ghani is currently sheltering in the United Arab Emirates on humanitarian grounds. Quote, the UAE Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation can confirm that the UAE has welcomed President Ashraf Ghani and his family into the country on humanitarian grounds, read a statement released on Wednesday. Ghani had initially fled Afghanistan over the weekend as Taliban troops quickly made their way into the Afghan capital of Kabul. Reporting indicated that he had escaped the country with a large amount of cash, but Ghani has denied these claims and argues he left the country to avoid, quote, a flood of bloodshed. 
The Taliban have won with the judgment of their swords and guns and are now responsible for the honor, property, and self-preservation of their countrymen, said Ghani in a Wednesday video posted in Arabic to Facebook and translated into English by CNBC. In addition to rumors surrounding money, Ghani has come under fire from other Afghan politicians as well as President Joe Biden for fleeing while the Taliban captured Kabul. Abdullah Abdullah, chairman of Afghanistan's High Council for National Reconciliation, said, quote, God will hold him accountable and the nation will also judge, per BBC News. Though the Taliban have seized control of Kabul and Ghani is in exile, U.S. official communications have continued to refer to him as President Ghani, as the State Department argues there has not been a formal handover of power. The Texas Democrats who fled the state capitol to block the vote on an election bill could now be arrested for doing so. Earlier this summer, Texas House Democrats fled Texas to prevent a vote on a GOP-backed election bill. A quorum of 100 members is needed to call a vote in the Texas House. So, to prevent the vote, the Democrats simply left. But on Tuesday, the Texas Supreme Court announced that the Texas Constitution allows for members of Congress to be compelled to return to the Capitol, and that includes being compelled by being arrested. Texas Supreme Court Justice Jimmy Blacklock wrote in the opinion that the legal question before this court concerns only whether the Texas Constitution gives the House of Representatives the authority to physically compel the attendance of absent members. We conclude that it does. The election bill Texas Democrats are opposed to would ban around-the-clock voting places, outdoor voting facilities, and straight ticket voting. Now stay tuned for my conversation with retired U.S. Army General Don Bulduck as we discuss his 10 tours in Afghanistan and explore what life was like for our troops on the ground. Never has it been more important for us to fight for America. Each day we see the penalties of progressive policies across our nation. Our elections are under assault. Our economic freedom is on the decline, and our culture is turning its back on the founding principles that have made us the freest, most prosperous nation in history. That's why the Heritage Foundation developed a plan to take on the left and take back our country. The Citizen's Guide to Fight for America provides a series of heritage-recommended action items delivered on a regular basis to your inbox. Make an impact in your community and in our country. Sign up for the Citizen's Guide at heritage.org slash citizensguide and join in the fight for America today. Our guest today is retired U.S. Army General Don Bolduck. Bolduck served 10 tours in the Afghanistan war, including as commander of the 1st Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group during Operation Medusa. He also served as former commander of special operations in Africa. General, thank you so much for joining us today. It is... uh... Wonderful to be here today. Thank you for having me and my best to all your listeners. It's a real honor having you on, sir. So I'd like to start with your service. Uh, Would you be able to take a couple of seconds to describe to our listeners what your role was over your 10 tours in Afghanistan? Sure. Uh, So in 2001, an initial invasion, uh, our role was to advise and assist uh, Hamid Karzai in developing uh, an Afghan indigenous force Uh, to defeat the Taliban and al-Qaeda in southern Afghanistan. Uh, We did that. 
my subsequent tours were uh, as battalion commander, brigade level commander, and as a general officer. Uh, and that was commanding, controlling uh, special operation forces, uh, Navy SEALs, uh, U.S. Army Special Forces, uh, Marine Special Operation Forces, uh, in supporting our Afghan partners in the village and district areas, uh, build a indigenous force to protect themselves against Taliban attacks uh, in their in the rural areas, um, and. Uh, that culminated with a command of about uh, 6,000 special ops forces on the ground uh, conducting these types of missions uh, in, in Afghanistan, very highly effective missions, I, I would add, not because I was commanding them, but because of the great work the men and women in the command did inside the villages uh, to support our Afghan partners as they protected themselves and their families uh, against the Taliban and against al-Qaeda. So it seems like you were pretty involved in this process. And I, I want to ask you, given your extensive history as both a soldier um, and a commander, so you've had these dual roles, what do you think could have been done better by the, the Americans in Afghanistan? Was this a war we ever could have won? It absolutely is a war we could have won. And I've written about this extensively, and I've shared it with the chain of command throughout my career extensively. By June of 2002, I believe we had accomplished the military mission that we were sent in there to do. We had established an interim government. Mohammed Karzai was in charge. He had uh, put in all his uh, provincial governors, and they were building uh, their government the Afghan way. And it was our opinion on the ground um, that uh, this was the best way to approach this war. Let the Afghans... Uh, defend themselves, let them build their security, let them figure out how they're going to prosper uh, themselves. And the international community could support that, uh, but uh, not be directly involved and let it be done the Afghan way. Well, obviously, we didn't decide to do that. We decided to rotate. We decided to transition into nation building um, <clears throat> and create Western-style uh, government in Afghanistan, Western-style military, Western-style police, which just doesn't work, and it didn't work. And these assessments were given over and over and over again from, you know, 2002 all the way up, uh, all the way up through, I know, 2013. It was just not the way to do it. It wasn't going to win, and we saw that. Uh, one of the biggest distractions in Afghanistan was the invasion of Iraq, which took a lot of resources away from Afghanistan. And so you had a period from 2003 to 2005 where the under-resourced, focused on nation building, Taliban resurged, uh, Af uh, Al-Qaeda resurged. And so from 2005 to 2010, we were fighting a very capable um, insurgency in there and then trying to hand it over peacekeeping operations over to NATO. Well, it was far from peacekeeping operations. General McChrystal came in with a different idea, bottom-up uh, strategy, which was uh, something that had been assessed and talked about being most effective. Building a Afghan local police force in the villages, similar to the Arbakai concept that they had that defeated Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, um, the Brits, and, and the Russians. Um, 
and we should have stuck with that. Uh, General Petraeus came in and solidified it, General Allen uh, also, and I served from 2009 to two, roughly 2013 with, with only a 10-month break between that in Afghanistan, assisting in coming up with this program. And by 2010, we had the highest U.S. casualty rates. We had the worst security situation. And using this bottom-up uh, counterinsurgency concept, uh, the Afghans were able to gain control in 90% of Afghanistan and the rural areas. Uh, and uh, our casualty rates were the lowest they ever were. Our effectiveness was was great, and it looked as if we were going to defeat the Taliban and al-Qaeda for the second time. They were saying that this strategy is something they can't defeat, I mean, out of their own work, out of their own mouths, uh, and they were disrupted, they were degraded, uh, and they were rendered, uh, you know, they were neutralized, rendered ineffective. The next thing I know, I'm sitting in briefings, and we're going to in the middle of 2013 in Afghanistan, and we're going to transition to non-combat operations. We're going to pull all our assets out of the village areas before the mission was actually complete and solidified so the Afghans could do it themselves, which would have taken a couple more years. So 2013, 2015, maybe into 2016 was our assessment. And then we could have handed it right over to the Afghans, and the Taliban al-Qaeda uh, would have been neutralized at this point uh, completely. But we didn't. We changed strategy in 2014. Obama decided the war was over. We we're going to transition to non-combat operations. Uh, we warned them that a reversal of the security situation, an increase in casualties uh, would occur, and that the Taliban and al-Qaeda would uh, resurge. And by 2016, that's exactly what happened. Uh, and by 2019, we had the highest casualty rates um, uh, that we've ever had in the Afghan war, and we were losing big time. Um, and I credit President Trump with his his plan, but he was pushing back against a, a Defense Department that wasn't on board. Uh, so, um, you know, when he, you know, uh, when he transitioned out of the White House and um, President Biden came in, I could see quickly that this was going to deteriorate into something that we saw in 2011 when we drew down to zero in Iraq. Um, problem is, in 2014 when he was doing this, there was little pushback from the senior military. So they just let it happen. And now uh, we have, we're seeing the worst planned withdrawal by political and military leaders I think in the history of warfare. It is a disaster. It is shameful. Uh, and I hope I have caught you up sufficiently on what I saw being involved from 2001 to 2013 and, and how we are in this predicament now. And it's bad policy and strategy by senior leaders, both civilian and military, in executing the war. And it is horrendous uh, and very upsetting. Uh, withdrawal plans um and this is where we're at now and it's it's a tragedy i think that's definitely gives our listeners a very in-depth view of what the situation was like leading up to our our pullout from afghanistan one of the things that the media sometimes likes to discuss is that 
the Afghan people didn't want us in uh, Afghanistan. They didn't want us to be there. This was something that you know was forced from the top and that the actual people on the ground didn't want us in the country. In your time, what was the perception that the Afghan people had of the U.S. troops? Was this something that was true, that the, the Afghan people didn't want us there, or did you have a different experience? I had a much different experience than, than what has been reported. Clearly, we have stayed there too long doing what we're doing, and the ineffectiveness of our policy and strategy, I think, was frustrating um, you know, to, uh, to many uh, in Afghanistan. But the people in Afghanistan, I mean, you have to understand that as special ops, we were down there in the villages and uh, they loved us um, because we weren't trying to change them. Uh, we were trying to facilitate their success using, uh, you know, their culture and their beliefs and the way they want to live and, uh, and just uh, supporting that so they could build back up um, their institutions, uh, very similar to ours, you know, the Taliban destroyed their family, the Taliban destroyed their education system, the Taliban um, destroyed their security, um, their confidence, um, their, uh, and so that all needed to be restored and, and that took time. And that's what they saw our special operation forces uh, doing, working with them, beside them, uh, and not um, and not trying to turn them into um, into Americans, right? And I think that's one of the biggest frustrations that people in Afghanistan see and have uh, is that in many respects, you know, we took over. I mean, we, you know, in the early years, we named their country, we wrote their constitution, we brought the Italians in to put together their justice system, we brought the Germans in to put the, their police together, uh, and the U.S. military... Uh, put their uh, put their army together, uh, and then we built their government, uh, and we built the government largely on you know a, a bureaucratic process that we were familiar with in the West, and it just doesn't work. Uh, and we focused top down. So one of the things we did was we invested in corruption, uh, and uh, and so my experience was that they wanted us there doing particular things. Uh, and staying out of others. And we had a hard time differentiating between the two. I think that's a good message to send to our listeners that, you know, as much as the media will say, oh, you know, this was something that we weren't supposed to be doing, at least the people on the ground respected us and wanted us to be there. Now, on a sort of similar note to that, do you feel that the way we pulled out of Afghanistan, the way that we uh, left and the way that we decreased our forces, do you feel that will affect the relationships we have with the local allies going forward, both in Afghanistan and in other conflicts that we're involved in? I don't see how it cannot, right? I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a black eye to America for America's foreign policy. It is a, it is a complete 100%, um, absolute failure uh, in taking care of people that helped us for 20 years. And, and I can tell you, and I can testify to the fact that they kept me alive. They kept the men and women in my command alive. We would not have been able to do the missions we did in the village areas without the protection of, uh, the Afghan people and the tribal elders and the village elders and, and that construct that they had, uh, their, their cultural construct. And so, 
we have let them down, we have let our allies down, and we have sent a signal to the rest of the world that, you know, if, you know, when America decides that they're done, uh, they're done, and regardless of the consequences of that, and, and that's absolutely the wrong message to send. We, in, you know, we invested in this country, many of the people in there invested in us, and, and I got to tell you, over the years, I've written a lot of supporting memorandums for visa applications. Uh, some have been successful and some have not. Our system is terrible, um, and I continue to do that. Um, I wrote five yesterday. I Since 2017, since I retired, um, I've probably written near 50 memorandums for um, Afghans who I worked with uh, to apply for visas to get out of Afghanistan because they saw this coming um, and they wanted to get out. And unfortunately, we have a bureaucratic system that doesn't allow that. Uh, to work effectively, uh, and we have left many of them on the ground uh, at the mercy now of an extremist uh, Taliban, uh, and we've left that unchecked as well. Uh, and so, you know, this is, in the history of warfare, probably the worst political and military planned withdrawal in, in, in the world's history. I mean, there, I, I can't, I'm a pretty good study of um, of history, and I can't think of anything uh, that was uh, that was done worse. It, it eclipses Iraq, it eclipses Vietnam, it eclipses anything that we have done. Um, and the sad thing is that when we look at how we did things in World War II and other things to you know kind of win the peace, um, we had more area, more countries to deal with in World War II. Uh, you know, we had Europe, we had Asia. Uh, and we did that more effectively. Today, we can't even handle one country uh, in a very unstable region, which nobody's even talking about that. Pakistan, a nuclear country, not the most stable country in the world or in that area. We got Iran to the west. We got an unstable Uzbekistan, Kajikistan, Kazakhstan. We have China. We have Russia. We have Iran. Uh, we will have North Korea in there because they follow China everywhere. Uh, this is just opening up Pandora's box. And the worst thing is it sends a message to China that we're not going to defend Taiwan either. And that's a bad message to send. I do think that that's something unique to the situation is that there are, are pretty intense geopolitical consequences to how people will be responding to this. I know a lot of people have compared uh, this pullout to the pullout from Vietnam and Saigon. Um, do you find that that's an apt comparison, or do you think that that's maybe a little too much? No, I don't think it's a little too much at all. And as a matter of fact, um, I could almost tell you that uh, not only is it comparable, it, it's probably going uh, going to be worse. I mean, nothing worse than a C-17 taxiing down the runway and hundreds of Afghans trying to climb onto the aircraft, and the aircraft takes off, and, and a number of them fall to their death, right? I mean, there is nothing more vivid than that as an example of, you know, the fall of Saigon and, you know, the withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan and what's going on in, in Kabul and what's being played out in, in many places uh, in, in Afghanistan at the expense of people that trusted us, right? Um, and, you know, there was no doubt in my mind, and I want to be clear on this with everybody, 
anyone who's read anything I've written, I was, you know, very supportive of President Trump's withdrawal uh, approach and plans. Uh, we needed to change our military mission there, but there was a responsible way to do it, and then there's an irresponsible way to do it, and I think we see the irresponsible way to do it. So this isn't should we have changed our mission in Afghanistan and what, what we should have done. There's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it, and uh, I think we can see that this is definitely the wrong way. Absolutely. Now, one of the things I would like to focus on is actually post-combat, you've done some really strong advocacy work to eliminate stigma surrounding post-traumatic stress disorder in our troops. Do you find that PTSD is something that's common in soldiers returning home from Afghanistan? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I think, I think you have anyone who deploys to combat, right, and experiences combat, whether, you know, whether it's uh, one tour or whether it's 10 tours, um, obviously the more exposure you have, um, you know, uh, you know, the more, uh, you know, the, the more post-traumatic stress has, you know, an effect. But regardless, we have uh, seen it in the history of warfare. Um, and I do believe that, um, all service members have post-traumatic stress because when you look at its essence, it's just it, the brain reorders itself, right? Uh, in, in a combat environment, the brain reorders itself so you can stay alive more than one day in combat. Well, the more exposure you have to combat, uh, whether it is, you know, during one tour or whether it's multiple tours, uh, the more... Um, difficult it is to reintegrate back home because there are triggers everywhere um, that are similar to what you experience in combat that would kept you alive and your brain reacts to that. So when we don't treat what I call the mental injuries of post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury, when we don't treat that in our service members effectively, then it uh, becomes very, very problematic, and we can see that in in the generations of combat veterans that we have. Uh, and, you know, uh, so yes, uh, understanding what post-traumatic stress is, destigmatizing it, understanding that you can be a highly functional person and have post-traumatic stress and, and uh, you know, live your life with the uh, symptoms that, that that creates. But the last thing we want to do is create an environment where they're on their own and they have to self-medicate with alcohol or drugs. It's just going to, you know, I mean, that's a slippery slope, right? You're going to go down. Uh, and it just culminates in this very high suicide rate that we have both on active duty and on, you know, and among our veteran community. So we see the guys that stay in that have post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury and don't get the treatment that they need. Um, and then our veterans, uh, this isn't one or the other. They don't become a veteran and then become suicidal. Uh, they are there in the military, not getting the right treatment. They become veterans. And I tell you what, in many ways, that support structure, the purpose, the camaraderie, uh, the job that, that you had that, that makes you believe in something bigger than yourself and gives you that sense of, uh, of belonging and purpose, that goes away and it gets worse, right? So uh, this is something that we fail to understand, uh, that we're not effectively dealing with, and it has its consequences. And I have to tell you, sir, um, I've done a call to action among the veteran community here 
because I am seeing and getting reached out by many veterans and many families of veterans, what they're seeing on television is, uh, you know, creating, uh, you know, worsening the, their, uh, their symptoms of post-traumatic stress, making them feel bad, uh, and, uh, you know, that moral injury that, that they've sustained in some cases gets even worse when they see the, the, the you know, the images on television and such. And so the VA and our communities and our 501c3 organizations that help veterans, we all got to raise, you know, employers, we got to raise our level, reach out to the veteran, reach out to the family, reach out to the person that, that you know has served. Um, and this is going to affect Vietnam veterans as they watch and Korean veterans as they watch and World War II veterans as they watch as well. So this isn't isolated to the Afghan or Iraq veteran, right? This is this is um, a society-wide um, uh, thing that we need to be aware of and we need to address. And, and nobody nobody is talking about that right now. Right, and I think that's such a good thing to be aware of that some of our troops, as they come home, are going to need assistance and they're going to need help. Well, General, we are running a little bit low on time here, but I wanted to ask you, kind of as a final point. Uh, recently, we've been hearing stories of veterans who are struggling with the news coming from Afghanistan. They're watching the TV and they're seeing these images. Um, it's kind of reminding them that some of them may have lost friends or, or sacrificed their their bodies and their minds to this to this campaign. What is your message to those veterans who are questioning if it was worth it? Well, understand that these veterans did exactly what they were told to do. Uh, and they did it with honor, they did it with bravery, they did it with integrity, and they accomplished every single mission that they were asked to do, no matter what it was, right? First rotation defeated Taliban and Al-Qaeda, uh, and then they made conditions better for the Afghan people, schools, clinics, um, businesses. Uh, they created an army, they created a police force, they did everything that they were asked to do. So please, do not allow the ineffectiveness of senior leaders on the political side and the military side take away the pride that you should have in your job that was well done. Uh, you are a, um, you know, uh, we are proud of you. You should know that we're proud of you. And this is a message that we're not hearing, and we should be hearing it at the national level, that our service members did exactly what they were supposed to do. They did not lose anything. Um, this was lost at the higher levels, and uh, unfortunately, the Afghan uh, government uh, and military and, and national police uh, have responsibility here, but not the men and women uh, that uh, served in our military uh, for 20 years and went over there repeatedly they did their job, they did it well, they did it with honor in their sacrifice and the sacrifice of their, their friends and family members did not go in vain despite what you're seeing today. Wonderful. Thank you so much, General, and a great thank you to all of our troops who are now returning home from Afghanistan. That was retired U.S. Army General Don Bulldock. Bulldock served 10 tours in Afghanistan, including as commander of the 1st Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group during Operation Medusa. He also served as former commander of Special Operations in Africa. General, thank you for your service, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. God bless you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. 
You can find The Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.